Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's go. First Peter chapter 5 is where we find ourselves today, coming down to an end in our series through First Peter. This week, we're going to just look at a few verses about what an elder, a leader of the church is, and then next week we'll conclude our time with a look at, at spiritual warfare and, and our enemy that prowls about like a lion seeking to devour us and why it is so important for us to be people that are rooted in the gospel and together for the gospel as a family caring and ser- serving and guarding one another's hearts in this, in this broken world. As you're finding First Peter, let me mention, as I always do, that if you don't have a Bible um, or maybe you forgot yours today, you can use the one in the chair in front of you. You can find First Peter 5 on page 1016 or page 800 on most of those, on all those Bibles. It's on one of those two pages. And again, if you don't have a Bible, um, you're welcome to keep that Bible as your own. Let that just be our, our gift to you. As you're finding First Peter, let me just mention a couple things as I've told you I'm going to do for a couple weeks. This is the last Sunday that I'll do this just to give you an update on our financial situation as we come to the end of the year. We don't talk about money here. We don't put a press on people to do that. Notice this is after the offering. There's going to be no manipulative plea here. But just to give us as a church family an update on where we stand financially with um, our building, we last few weeks I've been saying that um, we own this building and the two side buildings next to us which by God's grace we were able to purchase a little over a year ago in a foreclosure proceeding at the courthouse, on the steps of the courthouse. And we were able to buy these buildings. And, um, and the wonderful news about that is that, I don't think I've mentioned this the last couple of weeks, and Will reminded me about it and thought it might be an encouragement to you, is that the, we've been in these buildings for three years, and we were a tenant leasing the building. And then we were able to buy this building and the two adjoining buildings. And... After all the, you know, everything settled with the mortgage and all of that, our, now our mortgage payment is actually less than what our rent payment was when we were just tenants. And we're actually the owners of this building and we picked up the two side buildings. So praise God for that. So now we currently have a mortgage of, I've been saying it's 1.4, but again, I was corrected. It's actually 1.3 now. And we've been putting money away in that. And so um, if you are um, in a position to give towards the end of the year, a wonderful thing to do would be to help us to attack that debt and to get rid of it as soon as possible so that in the years to come, we will be debt-free and able to give more and able to invest in gospel ministry in our city and to the nations. And in fact, at the beginning of this year, we're going to take a couple weeks out of looking through a book and just talk about some things that we feel we're called to do as a church for a few Sundays in January, which I'm really excited about, which we'll, which we'll hear about coming up. And then after our missions convention, we'll, we'll start a series through another book, likely an Old Testament book. So we'd love for you to give um, if you um, are, are able to do that before the end of the year, straight to our building fund. Anything given to that will go to attack that debt. If you're a visitor today, I'm not talking to you. We don't want your money. We just want your hearts, and we're glad that you're here. Okay, enough of that. And then secondly, um, uh, coming up in January, starting January 12th, we have uh, two 12-week classes that are going to be happening on Sunday mornings before service. And so I think we've got a slide for them. We're calling them Sunday morning classes, a creative name. I know we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And they're going to start on January 12th, running through the end of March. That's 12 weeks from 9 to 10. Two classes going on. 
Progress of Redemption, an Old Testament survey. Ron Mullins, who is a very gifted teacher, is going to take the class through a look at God's redemption uh, and the gospel in the Old Testament, giving you uh, just a real good biblical overview of the Old Testament. would love for you to come to that. And then also, if you are a young parent, or maybe you're a young couple that uh, would is longing for children in the future, or maybe you're just some single folks and you want to equip yourself for the future of maybe being a better parent. And the Sheelys and the Sochets are going to team teach a class called Parenting in Light of the Gospel. And so those two classes will be happening at the same time. You can only, like, you have to sign up for one of them. You can't be at both at the same time. If you can, please come talk to us because you have a superpower and we want to tap into that. But so you have, they're going on at the same time. I'm 9 to 10. We'd love for you to sign up so that we can prepare for child care for that. And so sign up at the foyer uh, information desk with a sheet. All right, well, let's get into it. First Peter chapter 5. Now, let's, let's admit some things that we are, most of us anyway, we are Americans. Some of us are from Texas. I understand that. But most of us here, I was, I'm just, sorry, I'm feeling ornery. That was a cheap shot. Kind of like my little cheap shot at the, at the armor guys last week. I'm sorry about that. I apologize. That was unprovoked. But so most of us are, are, are Americans. Um, and... We have this sort of love-hate relationship with authority, don't we? Like we love it when it's exercised on our behalf and when we're like crushing our enemies, you know, shock and awe, you know, president gives a speech about how we just annihilated some terrorists. We love that. But then, you know, we also have this suspicion of authority, you know, you know, we, we, we are people that came from people who, who revolted against authority that was taxing them, you know, and, and, and oppressing them. And so we have this sort of strange appreciation for, but yet at times an unhealthy suspicion of authority. And a lot of times that bleeds into our life in the church and what we think about God and his authority, certainly. And then, and then earthly authority, authority within the church. And so today we're going to look at but I think it's just a very important text. It's maybe not particularly exciting, you know. It's not one of these type of things where we're going to just do shadow boxing halfway through. Yeah, that's going to help me get through Thursday. But I think this is going to be the type of text that will help us as a church be healthy for years and years and years as we think about who leads the church, who has authority in the church, and how does that intersect with our life together as a congregation. So First Peter chapter 5 we're going to look at the issue of elders. And I have three questions to ask us today that I will hopefully answer. So I'll just put them up there so you know these are is the outline of our time together. What is an elder? We're going to look at that. Two, what are the responsibilities of an elder? And then three, what is the responsibility of the church? And by that I mean in regards to elders. How are they supposed to interact together? So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll work our way back through this text and these questions. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us as a people and as a church. And even as we talk about dead on this building and um, what we see for ourselves in the future and our mission as a local congregation, we are humbled. We're humbled by how far you have brought us as a church in just eight and a half years to think that uh, 
Crosspoint started in a living room with just a few people. And here we are today. Lord, you have been spectacularly gracious to us in spite of, in spite of me, in spite of our naivete and ignorance and, and at times foolishness. You've been good to us. And Lord, we're thankful that we're not just on an island. We're part of the great body of Christ in our city and amongst the nations. And so we pray for other churches in our area. We're, we're very grateful for them. Churches in the Southern Baptist Convention and churches in the United Methodist Church and the Presbyterian churches and the Pentecostal churches. Lord, we thank you for all of the churches in our area, not just the ones that I named or denominations that I named, but we thank you for all the churches that believe in the same gospel that we do. Maybe they have different takes on secondary issues, but they are Christians, part of the family of God, knit together with us in Christ. And we are very grateful for their work and their witness in our area. We pray that you would bless them. We pray, God, for churches around the world in dark and desperate places where the gospel is persecuted and scorned. We pray, God, that you would encourage Christians in the continent of Africa and in the Middle East that are undergoing persecution, persecution and hatred. We pray, God, for encouragement for them. And we pray now as we come to this text that you would humble us, that we as your people would grow in an understanding of Jesus, our, our true chief shepherd and overseer of our souls, as we read about at the beginning of our service in John 10. And that you help us understand what his under-shepherds, elders, are called to do and how we as a congregation are called to interact with leaders in the church. And ultimately, God, today, like every Sunday, is not about some specific piece of doctrine. It's about the great and glorious gospel of Jesus. And elders exist, just as churches exist, to display the beauty of Jesus. And I pray that today, even as we talk about elders, that the clearest bell that would be rung is that Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Jesus reigns victorious, and that we must all turn and trust in him for life evermore. Lord, if there's somebody that has come into this room this morning that is not believing and trusting, and that is not where their hope is, I pray that by your kindness, you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe that most important of truths. Help us now as we look into your word. Humble us. Make this time profitable. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So remember, this is Peter writing. And just think about all this mixed in in that sentence. Peter has, remember at the end of the Gospel of Mark, he, in a sense, really betrayed Jesus in cowardly fashion. And as Jesus was suffering, he is denying knowing Jesus. And to, so think of all the emotions wrapped up in Peter even writing those words that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, three questions. What is an elder? What are the responsibilities of an elder? And what is the responsibility of the church in regards to how they interact with elders? So let's look at that first question. What is an elder? Peter is exhorting these people in the church, this office, this group of people in the church that he is calling elders. It's the first time I think we see this word in in 1 Peter. He's writing to this group of people, elders. So what is an elder? Well, that word elder in the original language doesn't necessarily mean like it would have a connotation for us in English an older man, although certainly it's helpful if an elder is an older man, but it means it's literally speaking of an office in the church, a position of authority through teaching the Word of God. And we're going to look at some scriptures that, that speak to what this elder is. And I want to tune you into just kind of a frame of mind in the New Testament, words that are related to this elder. In fact, I think we could even say that words that are sort of interchangeable with this with this word elder. So when you see elder, know that when the Bible also at times will use the word overseer or pastor, these words are sort of synonymous and at times are used in the scriptures to speak about different aspects of the same office or the same role in the church that here Peter calls elder. So let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we see the clearest and most straightforward explanation of the qualifications of what an elder is. And this is the Apostle Paul now writing to a young pastor, Timothy. And in the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3, he gives a a very straightforward list of what the qualifications, what the characteristics of a person who is an elder, or in this case, he uses the word overseer. Again, same, same role, speaking of the same role in the church, the qualifications of an elder. So this is what Peter, I'm sorry, Paul writes to a young pastor, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, or again, we could read in that also, synonymous with elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, so there's 
Paul's list of qualifications of what an elder is to this young pastor, Timothy? Well, he gives a very similar list to another young pastor named Titus, just a couple books over. So if you're in 1 Timothy, just flip over to the right. You have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. These letters are often referred to as the pastoral epistles or letters that the pastor Paul is writing to these young pastors, instructing them on church life and leadership and what it means to be a minister of the gospel. Wonderfully helpful books. If you are a young man aspiring into pastoral ministry, you need to devour the pastoral epistles. You need to read them over and over and over again. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. You cannot read them enough. In fact, go home this afternoon if you're a young man who thinks that pastoral ministry may be on your future and don't watch football until you read First and Second Timothy and Titus. Okay, I don't know where that came from. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Very similar list to what we just read in First Timothy chapter 3. Again, Paul writing to a young pastor. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. Again, synonymous with overseers, pastors. Elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so those are the two lists in the scriptures of the qualifications. Those are really the only two times in the New Testament where we see a direct, clear list of qualifications from Paul to these young pastors about what an elder is, what his character should be like. Here's a couple things I want you to note from these lists. Do you note really how relatively ordinary, actually, the characteristics are? In fact, the noted New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, very respected Bible scholar who, who the pastors here respect very much, makes the, 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 the comment that this list of qualifications is actually, in a sense, extraordinary for its ordinariness. Did you notice? We, we basically want our elders to not be jerks or town drunks or embezzlers or complete idiots. Okay, that would be helpful. I mean, it's not, it's not like they need to be 6'3", 220, have pearly white teeth, blue eyes, a golden tan... You know, they, they need to look like Tony Robbins on the infomercials, you know. Or they need to bench press 300 pounds or run a 4 5, 40. Or they need to be wonderfully persuasive orators or leaders or whatever. Or have great charismatic personalities. Do you realize that those things aren't mentioned in that list? A young pastor that we love out in Texas says that, that, that you know, it, it, you can sum up some of these qualifications is that we don't want him to be a jerk. We don't want him to be the type of guy that wakes up, as Matt Chandler says, his pastor in Texas, we don't want him to be the type of guy that wakes up in the back of an El Camino on Saturday not knowing how he got there. Of course, there's more to it than that, but the point that I think Chandler was making there is that it's, it's that he's just a man of good character. We want the church full of men like this, right? We want all of our men to, to be men that are not quarrelsome, not drunks, not violent, hospitable, self-controlled, caring for just one wife, 
having all of their sexual energy pointed towards one woman. They're not flirts. They're not having troubles with pornography. They're not, they're not, their marriage isn't falling apart. They're, they're good examples of what it means to be a Christ follower, which again, we hope we have a church full of those. Except maybe for two characteristics that Paul mentions that might distinguish these, I think do distinguish elders, this office, this role of elder from just every other man in the church that hopefully is pursuing these characteristics. And that is, did you notice there in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says that this is trustworthy, that if anyone aspires, there needs to be this sense of calling in a man, that God is calling him to this role to serve the church in this way. And then it says in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3 that he must be able to teach. And then in Titus, did you notice in Titus chapter 1, it says in verse 9 that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder is a good, humble, Christ-like man who's pursuing the character of Christ in his life which is, again, what we want every man in the church to do. But what separates elders in their calling, in their role in the church, is that there is this sense in them and a recognition in the church, which we'll talk about in a moment, where they are called, where there's this inner sense of calling in a man that is confirmed by an external agreement with what is going on in that man's heart to aspire to this office. And he is able to teach to profit God's people by delivering God's word to them. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that every elder, pastor, overseer needs to have a a sort of regular Sunday morning preaching ministry or that his main gift is necessarily getting up in front of a large crowd and preaching or teaching. But I do think it means that he needs to be able to do that if necessary. Mark Dever pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., who's been very influential on all of us at the church, the the staff, has written this about that ability to teach. It simply means that a man is able to explain the scriptures accurately to other people in ways that profit them spiritually. He should be known by others in the congregation as a man to whom people can go in order to have the scriptures and the gospel explained and applied to their lives. So, an elder is a man who is Christ-like in his character. He's not perfect. He's still a man. He's still very much in process. But he is called by God, which is confirmed by the congregation, and he has an ability to teach. He leads the church together with other elders. He leads the church through teaching God's people God's word. He does not lead the church by the force of his own personality or his charisma or the strength of his magnitude. If he has charisma, if he has some giftings that God has given him and that is brought to bear and and brought into submission to God's will and is used for effectiveness, then to God be the glory. But he leads the church not through American corporate business model persuasiveness, but through his ability to deliver God's word to God's people. So what, that's what an elder is. It might be helpful for us to just think about what an elder is not. It's not necessarily just simply an older man. Again, that word elder is not just capturing chronological age, although clearly it it's, can be very helpful if a man is, is, is uh, older in age. 
I think it's good for elders to have seasoning on them and to have a mortgage and, and uh, responsibilities and an alarm clock. And so if you're a young man who hasn't quite figured out how to just sort of order his life, you're, you, but you're a great teacher, you're, you're, you're not yet. You, you know, life hasn't punched you in the face a few times. The good thing about older men is that life has punched him in the gut, right? And there's a humility. But an elder doesn't necessarily mean that he has to be an older man, although that is helpful. An elder is not simply a successful businessman. Right? So he's not just, oh, we need the president of this company and the guy who's the leader of the Chamber of Commerce and, and they're coming to the church. And so, they, oh, yeah, let's get them all together. No, not necessarily. If he is a successful businessman and if God has given him wisdom and that maybe is brought to bear and submitted to the Word of God and that can be helpful in leading the church, well, then to God be the glory. But churches run into all sorts of trouble when they just pick out the leaders in society in the city and because they're coming to church, they make that man an elder because he's merely a successful businessman. No. The qualifications are what we read in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. He's not simply an involved community member. He's not simply a good old boy. He's not simply somebody who likes to politic and be influential in the church. And notice I've been using the masculine um, um, pronoun. He, he, is, he is a he. He's, he's not a woman. An elder is a man. And where do we get that from? If you just go to the left, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We could spend more time on this, but let me just say I think that the Scriptures clearly commend that this office is an office that is for men. That men should serve in this, in this office and not women. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read in verse 11, that it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So the primary role of an elder in a church is to lead the church not because he's a strong man physically or because he has a particularly charismatic or persuasive personality, but the strength and the authority of the elder comes through the Word of God, His only authority is in as much as He's being used to deliver God's Word to God's people. And Paul here says that men, he, he bound up in the elder office, is this idea of teaching with authority God's Word to God's people. And Paul here says that women should not teach in this way. Now, it is not because women are not equal in their value and essence before the Lord to men. And it's not because women are not capable. In fact, most men, if you've been married for more than six minutes, you quickly realize how much more capable of a human being your wife likely is than you. And all of the men said, amen. <laughs> but what, Peter, what Paul here is, 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 is pointing to is not a cultural situation in Ephesus in the church, like all oh, the women in Ephesus were a bunch of, you know, loudmouths and young and immature in their face, so we can't have these women teaching. And he's not pointing to the fact that women are somehow less capable. No, the reason that men are supposed to teach not only in the home but in the church, which is then bound up in this office of being an elder to be a teacher, is because of God's created order. Because let's look at the next verse there in 1 Timothy 2. He says that women should not teach men in this authoritative sort of way. Why? Because women aren't capable? No, clearly not. Because the women in Ephesus were just a particularly surly lot? No. Because, verse 13 
He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul is grounding his reasoning and his logic why men should be the humble Christ-like teachers in the home and in the church and in that position of authority because God in his wisdom has created an order, a complementary relationship between the genders, men and women, who are equal in Christ. So in one sense, as Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male or female. We are all one in Christ in in the sense of our essence and value before the Lord. But in another sense, our roles are very different in men in the home and then also in the church in regards to over the whole church are to exercise this humble, submitted, Christ-like authority of teaching, of delivering God's word to God's people. So it begs the question, how does a man become an elder at Crosspoint? Well, there needs to be this sense that this man is called to this office and he would share it with uh, the current elders and and pastors of Crosspoint. And then there's this time of assessment and training to determine whether or not God is, in fact, whether the external sense of the current elders is, is, in, is congruent with this internal calling of a man. And then that brother would be put forward to the congregation for affirmation or denial as an elder. And so that's why your role as a congregation is so important. That's why it's so important to be a member of the church. Because at times, like we have in the past, we have five current elders, myself, Wayne Sheely, Will Hawk, Reynold Counts, and Doug Duncan, and these brothers have been put forward. I am the founding pastor and elder, so, you know, I've just kind of grown with the church, Uh, but the other brothers have been put forward for affirmation or If the church said no, they would not be elders. And that is something that we only give that right or that authority to people that have submitted themselves to the life of the congregation through membership. So if you're one of these type of people who rejects the idea of church membership because you don't see it like in the Bible, like join a local church, I think it's clearly implied throughout the whole Bible. How how do we know who, how do you know who your elders are? How do the elders know who they're truly responsible for? I think it's through the mechanism clearly, which is implied in the New Testament, of a people who are submitting to themselves. We call that, in our culture, church membership. And so a man then would be affirmed or or not affirmed and not be an elder according to the authority of the congregation. So that's what an elder is. He teaches the people and leads the people. He helps to govern the people through uh, his character as he submits to Christ and through delivering God's word to God's people. So what are the responsibilities of of an elder? Question number two, what are the responsibilities of an elder? Well, we see in our text several clear things mentioned. In verse two, Peter writes, now back to 1 Peter 5, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So with that responsibility to teach comes a leadership responsibility to oversee, to care for, to shepherd, to protect God's people. And they're to do this not under compulsion, not because they have to, or, oh, these people, they're driving me crazy, ragamuffins. No, but because they're called, they're willingly, joyfully accepting this burden 
of Christ-like leadership for their joy and the joy of people. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I mean, I don't think it's a problem here in our church or maybe in the Christian cultures that many of you have come from, but I think we do see examples of the charlatan-like behavior. I mean, just, just turn on TBN and you see people just abusing poor, vulnerable Christians for their money to sow into, you know, their ministry. And you see even court cases where pastors are living lavish lifestyles and not reporting their income to churches. I think pastors should live like most of the people in their congregation live financially. And so they, they are, are not men that are in it for shameful gain. They're not greedy, right? They don't have an entourage of people that sort of shelter them, you know? And they, they don't have personal parking spots and, you know, all these benefits and, you know, flashy cars, right? They're not in this. I'm, somebody's agreeing with me. Thank you very <laughs> Right? They don't, I mean, they dress appropriately, but they don't dress extravagantly. Look, they are called to die. They're called to death. They're called to be like the chief shepherd, Jesus, who lays down his life for the sheep, doesn't fleece the sheep. And if you go, or you're from a church, or you leave here and you go to a church, where there is an undue amount of honor and deference paid to the pastors, the elders, don't walk away from that place Run away from that place. It is is so unhealthy. It just it makes me want to stick a fork in my eye half the time when I see the just the the charlatanness. And I just made up a word. The charlatanness. It, I mean, it is such a bad problem. It deserves its own word. The charlatanness of much of the leadership culture of the church in America. And and then Peter says that they do not domineer over those in their char in their charge. But they're examples to the flock. They don't keep people at an arm's distance. They invite people into their home. Remember, one of the qualifications of an elder is that he's hospitable. Hospitable doesn't mean that you open up your house to people that you like. The word hospitable in Greek is sort of the opposite of our word Philadelphia. And yes, I pronounced it correctly. There's, there's, I have a little verbal tick for those of you that have been around for a while. I mispronounce the word Philadelphia, and I make the E and A, and I see Philadelphia. I realize I have a problem with it. I'm sorry. But the word Philadelphia literally means brotherly love, love of brothers, right? We all know that. The city of brotherly love, where Stallone ran up the steps in Rocky. You guys remember that? Well, in the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, the word that we translate as hospitable literally means love of strangers. Philo xenos, philoxenos. And so to be hospitable, he loves people not like him. He doesn't just have all his people around him. He loves people not like him. And he is an example to the flock. He, he opens up his life. He repents of his sin. He shares his struggles. He doesn't present himself as the person that is better than or more arrived in the Christian faith than other people. Now, he has to, have, he has to meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Certainly, there are sins that would disqualify a man from being an elder. But he is an open book, appropriately showing his progress in the faith. He leads the church through teaching God's word to God's people. Let me read quickly 1 Timothy 4. 
there is no better uh, explanation of what his responsibility is than in 1 Timothy 4 and in 2 Timothy 4. So in 1 Timothy 4, again, Paul writing to this young pastor, verse 6, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, he says, if you put these things... And what these things are, as the things that he's been talking about up to the letter up to that point, the gospel and all of the good doctrine, Jesus and his truth, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So he's saying, this is what you're supposed to do as an elder, Timothy. Put these things, good doctrine, the gospel, who Jesus is, what our responsibility is to him, to be his servants on this earth. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So elders are supposed to know doctrine and teach good doctrine as they work their way through the Bible. Don't be a young Christian who's scared of the word doctrine. We all have a doctrine, by the way. Maybe some of you, your doctrine is, I don't like doctrine, but that's a doctrine. <laughs> Do you get that? We all, have a, we all have a set of operating principles by which we navigate through life. Some of us are right, some of us are wrong. And, and Peter, Paul is saying here that there is this body of truth that has been handed down through the ages by Leaders in the church superintended by God's Holy Spirit that's been contended, the faith that's been contended for by the, by the history of the church. As it says in Jude, it's good doctrine that we are to teach. Have nothing, verse 7, to do with irreverent silly myths. And much of the American mindset is irre- irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. To be an elder is to toil and strive, not to coast in comfort. Because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Verse 11, command And teach these things. So elders shouldn't be men who are just soft little guys who are always suggesting they need to know the word, they need to know the gospel, they need to know good doctrine that flows out of it, and they need to be able to stand up and confront a culture which hates the gospel and even confront you if you are hating the gospel by the way that you're living. They need to be men who are more fearful of God than they are people's opinion so that they can get up and say, this is what the Bible says. They could command it in all humility. Not because they are strong, but because God's word is strong. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. How can you be an example if nobody knows you? If you beam yourself in once a Sunday and you sort of descend on the rafters and nobody can touch you because you're the elder or you're one of the pastors and you've got all these little minions around you to hand you water and stuff. No, you need to be the type of guy that can be an example. And the best way you can be an example is to be a repentant, humble, Christ-like follower. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Do you realize how much Scripture we read here? We read Scripture because we should read Scripture. Because the Bible says read Scripture. Because that's how people come to know God, through Scripture. To exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift. That you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. 
For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's go to 2 Timothy real quickly. I know I'm belaboring this, but it's important for us to see. 2 Timothy chapter 4, another beautiful paragraph on what an elder's responsibility is. Peter writing to this young elder Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So no matter what the Supreme Court says about this particular cultural issue, you preach God's word, young elder, pastor. No matter who disagrees, you humbly, with the accountability of other elders and the accountability of the church as a whole who affirmed you into this office, you preach God's word. Don't go after crowds or big buildings or lavish lifestyles. Don't go after statistics that you can report to a denomination to say that we baptize this many people or we've got this many things going on. Preach the word and let the sovereign God determine what happens with his word. He calls some people to great fruitful ministry here in this earth. And sometimes the most fruitful ministry is when we clarify the gospel to an unrepentant people who are rebellious against God's word. That's God's business, not ours. And so elders are to teach God's people God's word and to lead them to God, to fullness in Christ, to mission in Christ, through their teaching of God's word. Mark Dever again summarizes in three, just three brief words. He calls it the three G's of being an elder in his book, very helpful book called The Deliberate Church. He says that you can summarize the role of an elder pastor overseer with these three words, that elders are to help, or to, to help people graze on God's word, to bring them to the field where they can, they can take in and eat. They're to help people graze. They are to guide God's people into application of that word and mission and what it means to be a follower. And then they are to guard God's people from error and from unhelpful teaching, to help people graze, to guide them, and to guard. They are mature, humble-like, humble, Christ-like examples. And they are men that are not there for their own preferences, but they are willing to absorb the shock They're willing to absorb the difficulties of life together as a congregation. They're not there for their own preferences. They lay down their preferences. And they lay down their lives. And in so much as they do, they point to our chief shepherd, Jesus, who has laid down his life for his sheep. Which is the message of the gospel. So finally, we end with this. And if that's what an elder is, and that's what the responsibilities of an elder are, what is the responsibility of the church as they interact with these elders? First Peter 5, verse 5, he gives us a hint here. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
It seems as though in this particular text, Peter is particularly concerned with younger people. And he's saying to those that are younger, to submit to the righteous, Christ-like, godly leadership of your elders. And certainly that's the case. But I think this has application for all of us as well, that all of us, in fact, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So these elders are not domineering. They're not in it for shameful gain. They don't have a, you know, a preference or a hobby horse or a soapbox. They're not angry men full of angst wanting to domineer. They're laying down their life for the good of the church. And they are submitting themselves humbly to the life of the congregation. Likewise, the congregation is to humble themselves toward and have a disposition of submission towards the Christ-like, humble, righteous authority of the elders. This is what the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Listen to why. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now listen, do elders mess up? Yeah. Do elders fail their sheep? Yes. The under-shepherds, elders of the church, pastors, overseers of the church, fail the sheep all the time, unlike the chief shepherd of our souls, Jesus. We are imperfect shepherds. We will fail all the time. And if I, if I could look back on the eight and a half years that I have been the pastor, the, one of the pastors of this church, I look back at times and it, it, it wakes me up at night in the ways that I have failed people in various ways and not led them as diligently as I should. So pastors, elders can be wrong. That's why we don't think the church should be led by just one elder. I am not like the senior pastor of Crosspoint, and then I have all these little minions under me that sort of do my bidding. We, we are all, the elders of the church all have equal authority. And so I can't just say, hey, we need to do this and follow along with my lead. No, the elders are, they, they have authority over me. And if we move forward as a church, the elders must be in unison and then present it to the church for uh, affirmation and submission. And we move together in a sort of slow, humble dance where the elders are submitting one to another, not led by one singular man. Now, certainly I'm the leader of the leaders as the lead elder, but I don't have singular authority. But elders can be wrong. And that's where we need the congregation. We need you and your humble Christ-like submission. Not to get angry quickly when an elder fails or maybe when elders aren't singing, but to pray for and to be the type of people that realize the, the great war that is going on for your soul and that there are wolves out there that want to destroy the sheep. And it is the elder's task to stand between the sheep and the wolves. And someday these elder pastors will have to stand before Christ and not just give an account of their own lives, but they will have to give an account of the lives of those that God gave to their charge. Friends, that is a sobering thing to think about. A sobering thing to think about. So, are you the type of person that is a joy to lead? Doesn't mean that you don't often disagree with your elders, pastors. 
doesn't mean that they're not sometimes wrong. But are you the type of person who, by nature, has a sort of innate resistance to authority? And something that's maybe not super consequential in the church, but it's just a decision that's made by the elders, and it's something that you don't prefer, just causes you anger, and you just, you just sort of badmouth them behind their back and call people and fuss about it. Or maybe you just, you just have a general disposition to, to resist and to be unhelpful and incorrigible. Maybe you're like, no, no, I'm a pretty agreeable guy. But you've been here for like six months or a year and nobody knows your name. And you're not moving towards membership or going to another church where you can joyfully submit to membership. You're difficult to lead because we don't know what our relationship is with you. If you were to sin grievously, would we have authority over your life? Well, you haven't submitted to the authority of this congregation and these elders. That's why, friends, that's another reason why church membership is so important. Like, who... do, like, when do we become, like, together? When you've been here for three months? Six months? No, no, Brad will know. Something happened to me. He'll know. He'll call me. Well, we, Wayne should call me. Riddle, Doug, they'll call me. Well, the, the mechanism by which we have, which we think is implicit in the Scriptures, for who we know we're responsible for, is the mechanism of submitting yourself to the life of a congregation, which is church membership. It doesn't mean we don't, look, we care for everybody. And if we know you, we'll do whatever we can for you. But are you a joy to lead? Do you resist the leadership, the humble Christ-like leadership that the elders are striving for? Do you pray for your elders who can often be wrong? Do you see your role as joyfully pursuing Christ and his mission? Or do you basically treat them like a monkey at the fair? You know the little monkey with the symbols and the cute little hat? It's like goes around clapping, you know, clapping the symbols. You just throw quarters at the monkey. Dance, monkey. That's the way a lot of, that's the way a lot of Americans treat Sunday mornings and church life. I'm here to receive. Preach. Give me something for Thursday. Dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> you know, you could be the sweetest person in the world, but you're just like, you're, you're just, all you do is consume. You know, all you do is consume. I think Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that there's more to life together as a church. That you're, you're, you're burdened. Now listen, does that mean we all have to have it squared away? No, I'm not beating you up because the church is a train wreck. Every one of us. We're desperate, desperate people. In fact, my favorite Puritan, Richard Sibbs, said this about the church. Because we're not going to have it figured out. It doesn't mean that you don't have needs that you need to be met by your elders. It doesn't mean that we all need to be strong contributors. We're all going to be train wrecks. He says this about our life together as a church. He says, the Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. That's us, by the way. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful disposition. So pastors need to have a merciful disposition. They need to not beat the sheep, and the sheep need to have a merciful disposition towards their under-shepherds. And then it says, he says this, We must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. So together we have this sort of humility towards one another. 
So people towards their leaders and leaders towards the people. The church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all in some measure are sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. Now imagine, friends, imagine what it would look like and what we're going for here. I want, to, I want you to see this picture of these humble, gospel, Bible-saturated elder pastors who are giving their lives, like they're not there to push their agenda. They're not there for undue honor or shameful gain. They're not there to fill up their own sense of identity. They are called humbly by God. They've given themselves to a right understanding of God's word. And they are rugged sheep with dirty, dusty shoes and hands with calluses on them with staffs who are willing, st- staffs that are willing to beat off wolves and stay up late at night and to pray with people and to care for God's people and not lead them into self-absorption, but to deliver them in kindness because they fear God more than they fear the opinion of man to deliver the word of God which at times offends them and they are humble Christ-like leaders who are laying down their lives for the people that God has given them into their care because they know there's coming a day when they'll stand before Jesus and have to give an account of how they led these people and then there are these people who have this joyful disposition of grace and mercy towards their fallible human still in process under shepherds who are just trying to point them to the great chief shepherd and they have grace and mercy and patience with their leaders and they joyfully submit to the righteous teaching of their leaders and together this congregation of people become a sort of band a merry band of pardoned rebels who aren't there like most American congregations demanding stuff for themselves heaping up their own satisfactions and fighting with each other over silly irreverent myths but there are people that have this gracious Christ-centered disposition towards one another joyfully handling conflict forgiving one another having a room filled with a spirit of Christ focused repentance marching toward this mission, this reason that we exist, which is not for ourselves, but for Jesus and his mission and his beauty, so that together we as a church, that we as a tiny little pasture of people become a picture of God's irresistible beauty and grace in Jesus. And together we are pointing towards that day that Peter says we are going towards, that day when we will receive the unfading crown of glory. Friends, is that the picture that we are pursuing? Is that the picture that you are pursuing? That the elders of this church are laying down their lives for? I pray that it is. Because it's the reason we exist. So where are you in this picture? Do you know the chief shepherd? It is, Springer said, has laid down his life for the sheep. You will stand before your creator someday. And your only hope of that going well is realizing that you in yourself have nothing to commend yourself. And that you need this gospel, this doctrine that the 
under shepherds preach, which is that our only hope is in Christ and his life and his death, his substitution, his resurrection for us to trust in that and not in ourselves. Friends, if that's not where you are, you, I implore you to turn away from trusting in yourself and to trust in Jesus even now. Look to him. Believe in him. Repent of your sin. Repent of your self-trust and look to Jesus. Believe in him. Put the hope of your future, your right standing with your creator in Jesus' work and not your own. Even now. Don't wait for somebody to guide you through a prayer. Look to Jesus now and be saved. And if you're a member of this church or you're a Christian, let these words sink in us. And let us together be a flock of people who are running towards our great shepherd on his mission for his glory and our joy, joyfully submitting one to another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from Peter. They are humbling and they are very important for our life as a church. Lord, would you help us see that, especially for those that have come into this room not trusting in Jesus, the great shepherd, would you help them see that everything that we've been talking about today ultimately points towards Jesus that has laid down his life for his people and that all those that turn away from trusting in themselves and that turn away from counterfeit broken pleasures that never satisfy and turn in faith and trust in Jesus and not in themselves prove themselves to be his sheep and that every person in this room must do that in fact is commanded to do that by your scriptures to repent and to believe Lord, if a friend has not done that in this room, Lord, would you give them eyes to see and a heart to believe so that they can trust in Jesus and be part of his flock, his people. Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you make our current elders better elders? Would you make me a better elder pastor? Would you call more men from this congregation to be elders? Lord, as our church has grown, we need more elders. Lord, would you call men to be elders? Or to wrestle with whether or not you are calling them to be elders in the future. And if there's that sense that maybe that's the case, I pray, God, that they would that they would throw themselves into your book and read the scriptures and begin to prepare their hearts and their minds for this type of service if they are not ready yet. God, I pray for, for elders, more elders. I pray for us as a people that we would submit to our elders and that we would correct our elders humbly when necessary that we would follow their leadership. 
together you would form us as a people into more, more into the image of Christ so that we can be a more clear display of his gospel to our neighbors and the nations so that we can re- receive that unfading crown of glory on that day when our king, our great shepherd, comes again. Do this, I pray, Lord, for the glory of your name and for the joy and satisfaction of your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.